Matthew. Thanks uh, for inviting me to speak as part of the seminar series. Um, as Matthew just mentioned, I'm uh, teaching a course on indigenous peoples and political change in Latin America. And that's really been my main focus of research for some years, and particularly in relation to Mexico and Chiapas. I'm teaching that course during this term. I'm on sabbatical here in Oxford at the Latin American Center. Um, but also over the past uh, two or three years, uh, I started to do some work on the U.S.-Mexico border because uh, of where we live. Um, Las Cruces, southern New Mexico, is 40 miles from the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, from El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. I've also been teaching a course related to social justice on the U.S.-Mexico border, looking at a variety of topics, including environmental justice, um, as well as immigrant rights, which, of course, in recent years have become very, very prominent in the country as a whole and on the border. Um, so what I'm going to be talking about is how I see the problematic of talking about integration in a context of security um, enforcement policies, which have been increased dramatically in the past few years in the United States also in the context of uh, neoliberal economic policies, which have been around a bit longer, um, but uh, combining with the security model uh, to produce some very serious consequences and effects for immigrants in the border region and in the United States as a whole. And part of what I'm going to be talking about comes out of working with students during three summers, the past three summers, through the class that I mentioned on social justice on the border which has involved service projects for students to work with immigrant serving communities in southern New Mexico and West Texas. And we'll be looking, uh, if we have time, at maybe some of the products of that. Um, so let me begin. And uh, it's been fascinating to come to the seminars and just learn so much about what, not only what's happening in Britain and in Europe around this question, but also different approaches and concepts which I'm going to pick up on a couple, I think that may help connect for those of you who've been coming to the whole series to earlier uh, seminars. So um, when we talk about the concept of integration in the United States today, we have to put it in some broader context, I think, and the context is of securitization and of neoliberalism, in which at the same time as you have borders being open to capital and goods, you see them being closed quite dramatically to people. And arguments um, uh, stemming, of course, from 9-11 that the government needs to secure its borders more effectively than it has done in the past. However, we'll see that the uh, policies towards immigrants didn't start with 9-11. The, the more restrictive policies that we, we're going to look at began actually at least in 1996 and um, has, um, I think, reinforced by the security mindset since 9-11 in which all um, questionable activity, including the illegal crossing of a border, is brought under the rubric now of a security mind uh, apparatus. In this context, then, of borders which seem to be opening for trade and for capital to move, um, but also at the same time closing those borders to the movement of individuals, and one question which comes up in looking at this right now is, what can human rights advocacy do for reshaping integration? Um, if integration is being affected by these kinds of policies of securitization and neoliberalism, um, are there alternatives that come out of advocating around themes of human rights uh, that can help uh, give us a different model or a different approach to the whole idea of integration? 
Adrian Favell, in the first of the seminars this uh, term, spoke of the need to critique the national in national integration. Uh, he spoke of the need to look at different levels, and what he called a multi-scalar analysis that looks at the local and the regional, but also transnational networks of societal integration. And we're talking about cohesion and integration today. Um, and the critique that I think he developed of assimilationism. So that's something I want to look at, of what would that mean if we apply it in the US-Mexico relationship, particularly around the border. Um, could there be another way of thinking of societal integration which um, does not end up simply with the assimilationism of the past um, and provides perhaps opportunities for social cohesion based on uh, democratic values and human rights? Some of these terms seem to be very close to part of national senses of cohesion in the United States historically. For example, the idea of the nation itself being a nation of immigrants and the promoter of human rights internationally. So to use the language of um, immigrant rights is also to invoke what historically have been fairly uh, central to the myth of social cohesion in the United States based on, well, everybody who came here except the Native Americans are immigrants too. Uh, this is a nation of immigrants, everybody's contributing in their own ways. And also it's a nation which stands for human rights in all kinds of spheres and, uh, and discourse. But also, of course, there's some um, other elements to this. And politicians refer to the United States also a nation of laws with clearly defined borders. And that other, or those other components of thinking about the, the state and its political authority have become increasingly salient, I think, to the detriment of those first two points about being a nation of immigrants and being a promoter of human rights. So now the argument is used to restrict immigration by saying, well, if um, they're breaking the law, they're breaking the law, and we are a nation of laws, and we need to establish clear control of our territorial borders in a fairly uh, clear nationalist projection of um, American power. These tensions are often reflected in the ongoing debate over what should go into immigration reform uh, between those who have been arguing for a strong element of legalization, um, which would point to the fact that, well, this is a nation of immigrants, we've legalized immigrants before, we can do it again. Um, and also, in terms of human rights, it's probably the best thing to do if we want to establish greater cohesion and equality in the country. And then those emphasizing enforcement, which we've argued clearly in terms of, not, well, this is a nation of laws, what part of a legal do you not understand, and the need to enforce um, the border security. What I think is needed at this point is to come up with some broader connections or broader alliances that um, include a human rights perspective, but may have to include other concerns. For example, concerns over security, over jobs, over the economy, and the democratic process. Um, all of these are not always directly addressed by advocates for immigrants on the basis of human rights, but they can be, and that's what I want to try and get to. And it may be important if arguments can be articulated that could convince those who are not already supporting immigrant rights that this might also be something that could help in achieving greater security and greater economic prosperity 
and even greater democracy. I think the question that this comes uh, to is something that was raised last week by Davide Perot. How can we overcome this use of migrants as tools of governance? Um, he spoke about how migrants in Britain are being uh, positioned in a way that pits them against this white working class construction. We debated the, the constructed nature of that category last week, uh, so I won't go over it again. But I think there was also a sense that migrants aren't even allowed to speak in this debate very clearly or very often, that um, in governance of communities, particularly of labor and disciplining labor, the uh, position, the marginal position of migrants is being used, which affects everybody. So I'm going to refer to three um, parts of this paper. Uh, one is to begin by explaining simply the rise in border enforcement and consequences. The second is to look at different responses that use the language of human rights to try and counter some of these consequences. And in the last part, I'm going to talk more locally from where I mentioned I live um, in southern New Mexico and what we've been doing recently regarding this issue as far as research and, and outreach. And the conclusion, uh, this is really something we can discuss, um, is what kind of potential might there be for other kinds of integration that would involve um, a human rights perspective. So, uh, some figures. <coughs> The budget for the Customs and Border Protection Agency of the United States has increased in the past six years by 90%, from $6 billion to $11.4 billion. Interior enforcement, the budget for ICE, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement, has also increased by 57% in the same period, from $3.7 billion to $5.7 billion. Between 2004 and the present time, we have an increase in the number of Border Patrol agents from almost double, from 9,700 to 17,500 on US-Mexico border. And the border wall, which has been expanded since the same time, has gone from 143 miles in 2004 to now stands at 649 miles. A billion dollars has also been spent on a virtual fence the attempt to create a virtual fence using high technology, and it seems that is about to be scrapped um, because of glitches and failures in the implementation of it. So there's a billion dollars that corporations like the Boeing Corporation were able to um, use to begin to implement the virtual fence. And this is the bridge from El Paso and Ciudad Juarez um, <coughs> at the border. The National Guard has also been deployed. 6,000 troops were sent in the years 2006-2008 and uh, the last couple of years of the Bush administration, costing another $1.2 billion. <coughs> and another 1,000 troops have been promised this year by President Obama. Now, of course, there are many other issues regarding security, um, including drug trafficking, which are used to justify these arguments. So I'm not making the claim that all of this is just to stop undocumented workers. Um, but that's part of the problem of, um, in which the policies are affecting everybody, including the undocumented. 
Support for local law enforcement agencies has also been steadily growing now at around two, just over $200 million per year for Operation Stone Garden, which involves collaboration between local police and the federal immigration authorities in implementing or enforcing immigration laws and their restrictions. And then detention um, has grown also. Um, in 2006, about a quarter of a million undocumented people in the United States were held at a cost of over a billion dollars. And we've seen the growth in the expansion of private prisons in recent years that receive payments from governments in order to do the job of housing this ever-increasing number of detainees. And this has to do with a shift in policy in the early 1990s, and particularly a new law passed in by Congress in 1996. And what that law did was to establish mandatory detention of persons without papers and mandatory deportation of those who committed crimes. And the category of deportable um, crimes was also increased to make that uh, more prevalent. We've seen then the rise in the number of detainees, including refugees and asylum seekers who've arrived in the United States without papers. Uh, the number of detention center beds going from 8,000 in 1996 to over 27,000 in 2006. The 1996 law also reduced one of the key components in a justice system, which is judicial discretion, in which judges could weigh up the interests of the detainee, and the connections to a family or to a community, the number of years they've lived in the country, um, and so on, their contributions. They could weigh all of that up, the kind of hardship that may come from their removal, their deportation, to the state's interest in enforcing that deportation. But the 1996 law reduced that capacity for judges to play that kind of role. And so I think that's why you see this increase in the numbers and the beds and the detention centers. <coughs> At the same time, in the mid-1990s, under the Clinton administration, the policy at the border was one of deterrence. A deterrence strategy was implemented with the belief that the best way to prevent undocumented migration to the United States was to block off those areas where most people um, came through. They tended to be the larger urban centers, for example, San Diego, and which borders with Tijuana on the Pacific side, or El Paso, which borders with Ciudad Juarez in the center of the country. So by beefing up the enforcement apparatus in those locations, um, there was a reduction in the number of migrants coming in through those places. But what it did was to funnel migrants still seeking to come into the United States without the possibility of getting papers through the deserts of Arizona and California and somewhat New Mexico, um, with over 3,000 deaths occurring um, this year alone, over 250 as a uh, consequence of, of this. Internally, also within the country, enforcement has been increased. I mentioned the budget of the ICE agency. 
And interestingly, reading uh, some of the work on how raids are carried out and where they're carried out, it appears that there is a, a connection between the enforcement of immigration law and the disciplining of labor. David Bacon, in his book, Illegal People, has written and um, documented how in those places where union organizing was occurring, in which undocumented workers were playing a role also in those activities to try and improve conditions, that is where raids came in at precise moments where the organizing was getting a little strong. Um, so that also sends a message that not just to the undocumented workers, but also to workers who have co-workers who are undocumented, that they may not find it in their interest to continue to push for union recognition and for improvements in wages and conditions. And so there's some connection here which um, appears to be between both the security side and the neoliberal economic side of ensuring a, a non-unionized and more docile labor force that is exploitable, whether or not they have papers or not. And uh, David Bacon's frequent writings on this, I think, referred to cases under the Obama administration as well, where although it was announced that raids would no longer be continued, like in the Bush days, and the governments have started to use technology of tracking down social security numbers and looking for um, those companies where social securities do not match with the employees and targeting their uh, in those cases. So all of this enforcement has been going on. Uh, at the same time that there's been a failure by Congress to pass immigration reform, an immigration reform which could include that legalization part of the equation rather than just the enforcement. Uh, Roxanne Doty has written a um, very good book, I think, that draws out the connections between um, what may appear as very extremist local level um, groups like the Minutemen on the Arizona-Sonora border several years ago, um, engaging in vigilantism of calling themselves civil people's militia to um, apprehend undocumented people those groups and um, the restrictionist position of a variety of think tanks, of funders, of organizations that have articulated the notion of enforcement through attrition. So while immigration reform isn't passing, there is a concept, enforcement through attri attrition, which has been expressed um, and actually found its way into the language of the state law in Arizona. 1070 of earlier this year, which I'll refer to in a moment, as a, uh, as a theorization of what is needed to deal with the immigration issue. Um, basically, enforcement through attrition means making uh, life so difficult for people without papers in the country that they will voluntarily leave the country, and so restricting access to everything from a driver's license to employment to housing and even to electricity um, which is seen as a service and not as a right these kinds of restrictions on 
immigrants' ability to live in the country are seen as pushing people out, and therefore you get that attrition. The argument from this point of view is that it would be too expensive to simply round up and deport 12 million undocumented people. And, but this way of making it um, virtually impossible to live a life in the country without papers would lead people to leave them themselves, that attrition through enforcement. So while that has been advancing, um, we haven't seen immigration reform begin to address the issue of legalization. And what we are left with is securitization then. And this has been enforced even further through agreements established between the federal level, particularly the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, or ICE, and local police, local police departments, through memorandums of understanding, in which local police start to play a stronger role in identifying undocumented people and turning them over to the federal agencies then for detention and deportation proceedings. And so there are many, particularly um, poorer police departments who see there might be some resources, some money, some overtime for their staff if they work closely with ICE in helping to implement these enforcement measures. Um, the Arizona law and uh, SB 1070, which I'll say a few words about in a moment, I think is maybe the uh, the tip of the iceberg then of what we're seeing here, that's a culmination in some way of these processes leading to a state deciding on its own that we're going to start to enforce immigration laws directly through our own police efforts. Um, however, several Analysts have noted there's some serious problems with the collaborations between ICE and the local police. Uh, the two main programs which are referred to the 287G and Secure Communities. <coughs> 287G involves local police in identifying undocumented individuals and turning them over. Secure Communities involves more the use of technology such as fingerprinting everybody who is brought in by the local police to the local um, jail. Everybody gets fingerprinted, and those fingerprints then go into a massive database that um, determines whether or not those individuals are also undocumented <coughs> individuals, in which case I steps in and begins its own procedures. Now, much of the uh, justification for these memorandums of understanding initially was driven by the claim that and there are dangerous criminals who come into the country without papers and they are a threat to secure, secure communities and this should be targeted towards those individuals who do present a danger. So from a security point of view, you would expect police, uh, particularly a, a federal agency, to want to know if people are being arrested for serious crimes, then um, are they eligible for deportation as well? Are they uh, undocumented. So the priorities of ICE, their stated policies and their own policy um, text and manuals, those priorities revolve around the worst of the worst, targeting the, the most violent criminals. 
However, in practice, we're finding that a much wider net has been cast, and particularly in local jurisdictions where the sentiment towards immigrants already is turning um, against those individuals. There's little in the way of documenting the gravity of the crimes for which people are being accused in order to protect them from being sent onto ICE and for deportation. So you see an increasing number of people um, being caught in this white net. And potentially, you could have um, 12 million people, you know, for all 12 million, don't commit some minor crime or get caught by the police, maybe not. But you can imagine a very large number of people of the undocumented population potentially could be put into that situation if that net continues to be cast so wide. So ISIS, even the government and ISIS' own priorities to target the worst of the worst are not being met in this process. And ICE isn't doing anything significantly to reverse the process. Um, and it's creating this uh, potential um, problem. 392,000 people then were deported from the United States in 2010. Over half of those were people who committed minor crimes or no crime at all. So this is kind of the result of a system that is uh, bringing in. Um, large numbers of people um, unnecessarily. So the Arizona SB 1070 law was passed by the Arizona Congress earlier this year, um, it was the end of April, and that would require the local police to check the immigration status of any person they stop if they suspect if they have reasonable suspicion that they may be in the country without papers. And there are many other measures within the law, we won't have time right now to go over them, but that was probably the one that caused most uh, controversy uh, with the Arizona Congress and the governor arguing that this is needed because the federal government had failed to implement its own immigration laws. And opponents saying, well, this is immediately going to lead to racial profiling and to the arbitrary arrest of people on the basis of their, their skin color. As it happened, the Justice Department um, filed an injunction, and currently the whole, uh, not the whole bill, but this and three other measures of the bill particularly are under review. But if it passes, if eventually it passes, what we're most likely to see, I think you can begin to gather, is an increase in the number of people who are going to get detained in Arizona. And also in other states where we're finding, at least in five states now, this copycat legislation uh, attempting to be implemented. No state has it gone through, but um, this is where we're at with this kind of enforcement. Interestingly in this, um, the role of private prison companies in supporting legislation like this shouldn't be ignored. And we mentioned earlier how because of the 1996 law, then increase in the number of, of beds and then increase in the number of detainees. So this is um, a business now, it's an industry that um, receives uh, thousands of detainees. A recent article, uh, a news report actually from two weeks ago, on National Public Radio by investigative reporter Laura Sullivan 
um, was able to show how the Arizona bill was drafted in conjunction between um, Correction Corporation of America, which is one of the biggest private facilities, and Russell Pierce, Senator Russell Pierce of Arizona. Pierce said that he actually had written the law and went to this meeting with a group known as ALEC, which is American Legislative Executive Council, Exchange Council, sorry, which brings together all kinds of corporations to meet with legislators and legislators around the country and lobby on behalf of certain kinds of bills. So here we have very powerful corporate lobby in favor of the expansion of detention because there's a lot to be made from this. Um, in their own words, they see this as a business opportunity. If people are coming across the country without papers, they're bound to be detained, particularly if you have 1070 going into full force, not just in Arizona, but in state after state. You can imagine the number of business opportunities out there. Um, I recommend that, um, I've got the reference in this PowerPoint at the end, if you want to just take a look at that report, it's causing, of course, some controversy. Um, economic costs are also a concern, um, I think, that we could be talking about the workplace enforcement, what we've seen is how wages can be brought down when unions are targeted you also have increasing unemployment when people are thrown out of work, declared to be illegal in a situation already there's high unemployment. Employer sanctions are being used by the current administration to say um, the real problem are exploitative, abusive employers that hire undocumented people and then mistreat them. And of course all of that is true. The question is, do we really help the undocumented workers by Fired, or having them fired when the uh, company has told you have to dismiss all of these undocumented workers. I don't think so. There may be another way of addressing that one through legalization. But that is the kind of argument being used still. Okay, let me refer to some of the human rights advocacy then. And there's a lot going on in the country. Um, I want to refer particularly to a report by Jorge Bustamante from the United Nations from a couple of years ago. This was during the Bush, Bush administration. And he focused mainly on detention and deportation problems uh, there. And he cited numerous violations of these codes, at least, of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the American Human Rights Convention, and uh, the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Amongst the main problems he saw were detainees being denied the right to a fair hearing. I mentioned how judicial discretion has been cut back. Um, and so there's no way of really weighing the interests or the commitments or connections of individuals to their communities and their families versus this um, policy of deportation. Um, the right to private life and family could also be seen as being denied in a violation of those human rights which are established in international law. Over a million adults and children separated since 1996, interestingly including about half a million US citizens who live in mixed-status um, families. Poor detention conditions were also documented by Bustamante uh, with the lighting on for 24 hours a day, the use of shackles, uh, lack of medical attention, uh, transfer to centers on the other side of the country, uh, removing people from the ability to meet with family or to try and gain uh, some redress through their lawyers. Um, 
and local police violations of due process too. Um, raids occurring without warrants, early morning um, raids on people's homes. We had some of this in New Mexico in the past few years. Um, the denial of access to legal counsel under the 1996 law, government is not obliged to provide legal counsel to people who are in this category of undocumented. And so 65% of those trying to appeal deportation procedures have to do it themselves through self-representation and get all the information together, make their arguments. And often a very poor um, people from Mexico, Guatemala, are in this situation. So the recommendations from Bustamante included many things, but I think the main ones I wanted to highlight there were um, mandatory detention to be eliminated and to re-establish some judicial discretion into all of this. That hasn't happened, unfortunately, but those are still points. Um, then around the country, I won't have really time to go into details of this now, but um, labor unions have tended to move towards support for immigration reform. There's some contradictions within the have its unified position now, um, but uh, compared to the 1980s or before that, I think labor unions in the United States have tended to see that their own future relies on um, having the immigrant co-workers given legal status. Um, currently there's a program called the Dignity Campaign, which is a coalition of about 25 different regional groups around the country pushing for immigration re reform um, with these kinds of human rights concerns that have been mentioning. Uh, the many faith-based community organizations and the immigrant rights marches in 2006 themselves brought together new networks of organizers, of participants. Um, 25 cities in the United States saw their largest ever demonstrations in the whole of their history at that point. So this wasn't just in one or two places like Chicago or LA, but it shows some presence and voice around the country that although what we're seeing here are restrictive policies, immigrants are not being silenced or not returning necessarily. Um, let me refer locally then in the last few minutes to New Mexico, southern New Mexico. This is a map here. Um, you can see the border with Chihuahua right at the bottom. Um, El Paso is just to the right, actually not noted on the map, but it's just right of a place called Sunland Park, which is that red district there. Las Cruces is up that road in the middle, the kind of the gray area there. And these red communities here are known as colonias, and these are poor migrant communities, uh, mainly farm workers. Um, they've been around for some years, but they're now facing also the problem of freedom of movement being denied by a lack of their papers. Uh, there are immigration checkpoints uh, to the north of Las Cruces, about 10 miles north, and both to the west and the east. And so um, it's seeking work or having to travel long distances for whatever need. There's an obvious problem once you have to go through constantly checkpoints. Uh, the thing that sparked some of the most recent community responses were raids in a place called Chaparral, which is to the, um, to the east of there. You can see right on the border with Texas, the largest of the colonies, Chaparral, in September 2007, um, where the local police was using one of these programs, one of these memorandums of understanding with ICE, 
in order to try and detain who they suspected of being without papers and um, going into homes without warrants um, in the middle of the night shouting uh, pizza delivery to get people to open the door. Very um, uh, clear violations. And that led to response um, from a variety of groups and since then we've seen the building of a task force which brings together local organizations, some faith-based, some um, legal advisors in a, uh, a new coalition. Um, as far as what we've been doing with the students uh, in, in coursework, we've done a variety of service projects including an immigrant rights manual which begins to try and put together a wide um, variety of laws in a language which is accessible in both English and in Spanish. I have a copy of that here. Take a quick look at it. And um, that is being used in trainings on know your rights issues for some of the communities that are affected by this. We've also produced a youth video documentary, which of course we won't have time to see now, but if anyone wanted to, I could get you that. Um, amongst the successes at a local level, um, there was an attempt from one of the private prison corporations to build a new private detention centre in Las Cruces uh, to convince the local city council to go along with this. They were dissuaded by the kind of lobbying that came from this network of local organisations and some of the research that started to show the problematical nature. Um, and in the summer of this year, we organized a forum for debate, realizing there's, you know, there's very uh, controversial issues here, and many in the community feel as though they can't um, have that debate. Oh, <laughs> we were talking about that last week here too. Um, how can we have a debate around the future of immigration? Um, so we tried it in the summer, and um, out of this came a committee which has drafted a letter to Obama trying to get him to address some of these issues, including a moratorium on detention and deportation, at least until we have an immigration reform and, and many other more locally specific issues involved. So, I'm sorry I have to, have to race through that a little, but in, for the sake of time I'll conclude um, by saying, well, I think what we are seeing is a more restricted form of integration in the context of securitization and neoliberalism. But there are alternatives being constructed through some local and regional, and there's now a border-wide network of immigrant um, rights groups, and transnational networks as well that link workers across borders. So perhaps this multi-scalar approach that Adrian Favell was talking about may be useful for looking at integration, still as a matter of social cohesion, but not as assimilation. Um, and I mentioned that besides the focus on human rights, which tends to attract the usual suspects, American civil liberties unions, faith-based groups, and so on, civil rights activists, there are other issues which, if approached in a critical light, could potentially bring in some other voices. Um, on security itself, I think we cannot really say security is even being served by the way in which this wide net is being cast. Um, if the priority is to find the most dangerous people who could really hurt us, then the policies and the implementation of them by ICE and the local police 
themselves are not really getting us there. Um, and it's also very costly. In terms of the economy, um, we often think, well, in times of economic crisis, why would anybody want to begin to talk about legalization? Um, one way of doing that might be to say, well, what we really need are job creation programs for everybody, <coughs> including the immigrants, but of course also including that white middle class, whatever category we want to construct, workers. Practically, uh, one proposal um, is for the fees that immigrants would pay for legalization to get their status could go into a fund that could help in job creation in areas of high unemployment. So there may be an interest there in reaching out across that legal-illegal divide. Further education on how trade policies like NAFTA affect workers on both sides of the border can also bring people to see that maybe it's not the migrants who are a threat, but some other uh, agency. And finally, uh, to bring up this whole issue of how the democratic deliberation, the process of making laws, is being shaped and undermined by the disproportionate influence of corporate lobbies like the one we've just mentioned in the case of Arizona. Um, so if, uh, if those connections are so strong, then it isn't just a matter for immigrants, but for everybody, for voters, for citizens who may have a different expectation of legislators than simply to work hand in hand with uh, the corporate lobbies. So thank you.